You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, all you Constantines. We're back for 2022. And before we get started, I've got a special announcement. If you hadn't noticed in the byline or from the Sonic ID a couple seconds back, The Constant has a new home, Airwave Media. Airwave is doing the Lord's work, helping grow, develop, and sustain independent podcasts that are focused on curious, intelligent, and fun investigation. I am proud and lucky to be a part of them and to join the ranks of some of my favorite science and history podcasts. This also means that I have to leave the ranks of some of my other favorite podcasts, the good folks at Hub & Spoke Audio Collective. I owe everyone at Hub & Spoke several steep debts of gratitude for everything they've done for me over the last couple of years. Podcasting, I've discovered, can be a lonely pursuit here in the closet, and by welcoming me with open arms, Hub & Spoke helped dampen that feeling. I'm going to miss them a lot and hope to be able to wedge my way into their buffet table the next time I'm in Boston. So, one last time, I'm urging you, you listening right now, to go check them out. Go to hubspokeaudio.org and tune in. I started writing up a synopsis of all the shows at Hub and Spoke and what I love about them, but it became too long to subject you to. So just go. Go now and start clicking. You're going to find some really great radio, guaranteed. And while you're at it, check out our new home at airwavemedia.com, which is similarly replete with fantastic audio. In case there are any concerns, allow me to allay them. Nothing about the constant is changing for you, aside from the sonic ID at the top of the episode. This is still my show, done how I want it, for better and for worse. Airwave is here to help support that mission wherever it takes me, to help find more listeners like yourself, and to make this whole thing more financially stable. And to help me find some new friends in the paradoxically quiet world of audio. One last round of thanks to Hub and Spoke, to Airwave, and to you for listening. Now, let's get on with it. Before I make him look stupid, you should know how cool Simon Newcomb was. He was born in Nova Scotia in 1835, the son of a traveling schoolteacher from whom he received the bulk of his education. When he was 16, his father arranged an apprenticeship for Simon with a New Brunswick herbalist named Dr. Fichet. Simon was to serve under Fichet for five years, after which he'd have the skills, and his mentor's good word, to back his own medical practice. But Dr. Fichet refused to teach Simon anything, refused even to let him see him at work or to visit a patient. After two years, Simon realized why. Dr. Fichet was a charlatan. 
His herbal medicine didn't work and employed no system that could be taught. So Simon left Fiche and traveled to Salem, Massachusetts to be with his father. He was almost entirely self-taught, aside from his father's instruction, but managed to earn a Bachelor of Science from Harvard in 1858 regardless. With only that bachelor's degree, he got a position as Professor of Math and Astronomy at the United States Naval Observatory. This was less to do with his genius or skill and more to do with it being 1861 and a whole bunch of Southerners abandoning Washington, D.C. to join the Confederacy, but Newcomb made the most of it anyway. Through the 1860s and 70s, he worked at the Naval Observatory on a problem listeners are by now all too familiar with, determining longitude via lunar positioning. He improved the charts of the moon's movements and planetary ones too, before moving on to the Nautical Almanac office in 1877, where he published Tables of the Motion of the Earth on its Axis and Around the Sun, a book of tables pinpointing the position of all of the planets in the solar system, including our own, at any moment, which became the reference for all astronomical almanacs printed the whole world over up until the 1980s. While working on that, he came up with a method for determining the speed of light, which he calculated to 99.97% accuracy. And at the same time, he became the first person to discover one of the weirdest properties of math. At the time, and for a long time still to come, there were logarithm tables, big books that helped a person do complex logarithmic math. Newcomb noticed that the pages of the logarithm tables got less worn as they went, that people were using the earlier parts of the table far more than the latter. To explain this, he came up with a truly outrageous hypothesis. See, the tables were laid out by the first digit of the numbers. 10 through 19, then 100 through 199, then 1000 through... 1,999, then the 10,000s, the 100,000s, the 1,000,000s, and so on. Then came the 2s, the 20s, the 200s, the 2,000s, etc. Likewise for the 3s, the 4s, the 5s, all the way down. So, in effect, the wearing of the logarithm tables suggested that people were looking up numbers beginning with 1 far more than they were looking up numbers beginning with 2, and 2 more than 3, and so forth which is curious, right? Why would that be? Well, Newcomb's explanation was even more curious, but also really simple. The reason people were referencing numbers beginning with one the most was because out there in the world, most numbers began with one. For some reason, if you took a random set of data of any real occurring thing, more of those numbers would begin with one than two, and more two than three, and so on. And when I say any real occurring thing, I really mean it. Like the numbers in the Fibonacci sequence, or stock prices, or bank deposit amounts, or the height of mountains, or the birth or death rates in a city. Like, say you went through an issue of Reader's Digest, line by line, and wrote down every number mentioned in it. All of them. Years, addresses, ages, quantities, whatever numbers just happen to have been written in a random issue of a magazine. What you'd find, according to Newcomb's logic, is that 30 or so percent of those numbers began with 1, and 18.5% began with 2, 12.5 with 3, 7.5 with 4, 7.1 with 5, 6.5 with 6, 5.5 with 7, 4.9 with 8, and just 4.2% of all of those random numbers would start with a 9. It's a really wild conclusion to draw. Well, 
1938, a physicist working for General Electric named Frank Benford went through an actual issue of Reader's Digest and showed it was true. And then he went through an address book, the surface areas of American rivers, the populations of nearly 3,300 American cities, and a few dozen other data sets, and they all behaved exactly as Newcomb had suggested. Today, the Newcomb-Benford Law, better known as Benford's Law, is so well established that it's used in courts of law to prove when people are cooking their books or cheating on their taxes. So, Simon Newcomb wasn't just smart, but smart in a way that made him unafraid to question orthodoxies, to see the world differently than others, to imagine things that others could not. Understanding that, now let's make him look stupid. In the September 1901 issue of McClure's magazine, Simon Newcomb wrote an article entitled, Is the Airship Coming? The question was only a slight rhetorical twist on what he was really asking. Was it possible for mankind to fly? His answer was a careful but ultimately firm no. No, said Newcomb, unless there was some hitherto unknown law of physics or undiscovered super strong material, human flight was impossible. His reasoning seemed reasonable. Look at birds. Hummingbirds can propel themselves straight up, turn on a dime, hover in midair. But as the size of the flyer increases, its agility diminishes. Sparrows fly easily under their own power, but totally lack VTOL capabilities. Larger birds, like vultures and eagles, have a more difficult time getting airborne, and once they're up, they tend to soar and glide on thermals to stay that way. And the largest birds? Ostriches, emus, emperor penguins? Well, they don't fly at all. This trend, Newcomb says, is not coincidental. It's a physics problem, and, in his estimation, an unresolvable one. You need bigger wings to lift more weight, but the more you embiggen the wings, the more they weigh. It's not a one-to-one -one relationship, either. The lift of a wing is related to its surface area, but its weight is related to its volume. The math, according to Newcomb, is simple. The lift is squared, the weight is cubed. Past a certain point, wings get heavier, then they get liftier. The same problem held for the steam engine. More power requires more steam, requires a larger engine, requires more weight. Therefore, human flight is impossible. Yes, Simon Newcomb was wrong, and he'd learned that just two years after his McClure's article when the Wright brothers made it all too obvious. But I am not here to explain what Newcomb didn't know about the airfoil and the internal combustion engine. I'm not here to talk about Wilbur and Orville, either, or Alberto Santos Dumont, who arguably had already flown months before Newcomb's article, or the Montgolfier brothers, who pioneered lighter-than-air balloon flight more than 100 years earlier, or Sir George Cayley, who invented the first verifiably successful glider in 1853. Instead, I am here to talk about Simon Newcomb's other argument against the invention of the airplane. In 1903, he published another article about the impossibility of manned flight, this one for The Independent, and written in response to a recent flying machine failure. The article rephrases Newcomb's other concerns, adds on a few minor quibbles, and finally takes a little time to explain the issue that fascinates me. As a rule, it is the unexpected that happens in invention as well as discovery. 
There are many problems which have fascinated mankind ever since civilization began, which we have made little or no advance in solving. The only satisfaction we can feel in our treatment of the great geometrical problems of antiquity is that we have shown their solutions to be impossible. May not our mechanicians, in like manner, be ultimately forced to admit that aerial flight is one of that great class of problems with which man can never cope, and give up all attempts to grapple with it. In other words, if flight, arguably the oldest, most basic, and universal of human fantasies, is possible, how come everyone who has tried in the last umpteen thousand years failed, and failed miserably? This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. A few years back, I stumbled upon a quote from Orville Wright. He was describing the research he and his brother had done in their quest to fly. So many attempts to solve the flying problems started with the same idea and stopped at the same point, he said. Most of them resulted in little or no advance over what had been done before. To my mind, Sir George Cayley was the first of the important pioneers. I squinted at the suggestion. It was so absolute, so dismissive. According to Orville Wright, nobody had done anything worth studying in the field of aviation before 1853. Well, that couldn't be right. Flying might be the oldest ambition of humanity. The first people to consider how they might take to the skies were probably also the first people full stop. And why shouldn't they have succeeded in making that dream manifest? All around them were animals and insects of no particular strength or cleverness that nonetheless managed to fly, seemingly without effort. Birds were one thing. Birds are beautiful, awesome, poetical. But what about gnats and moths? What about the June bug, which drunkenly bumbles about into this and that? Too slow and stupid to even evade a toddler's hand, yet still capable of taking to the air in all its corpulent, dull-witted majesty. If them, why not us? Flight must not be just our oldest ambition, but our most primordial envy. A gap nearly everyone, at some point or another, has wished to close. And some subset of nearly everyone, a very small percentage of a very large number, must have tried, with varying degrees of seriousness. Dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of people. But Orville, said that none of them are even worth considering. I'll be the judge of that, I thought, so I went looking. And what I have found is that Orville was half right. Up until George Cayley pushed his butler off a hill with the glider in 1853, there had been no practical advancement in heavier-than-air flight to speak of. Before the Montgolfier brothers' balloon took off in 1783, there was no hope of slipping the surly bonds of Earth at all. If you were the Wright brothers, interested in gleaming the secrets of soaring, then indeed, as Orville said, history had nothing to teach you. But if your interests are less practical, if you want to learn about hope and failure and hubris and impetuousness and commitment and deceit and the boundless power of belief in the face of all sense and reason, if, in other words, you're interested in the human condition, then there is very much to learn. So for the next few episodes, we'll be looking at some of the people beneath Orville's consideration. This isn't so much a history of flight. It's more like a history of falling. Today's episode, 
What Goes Up, Part 1. Chapter 1. The Actor. It's safe to assume that we don't know the name of the first person who attempted to fly. Because I'm willing to bet the first attempt at flight predated any written record. At some point in the Stone Age, some person must have held a hide above their head, jumped or ran, and felt the resistance, the parcel of air dragging above them. And at some point in the Stone Age, some person must have gotten an idea, climbed to an overhang or the top of a tall tree, and leapt. We don't know that person's name, but we also don't know the names of the people who watched or didn't watch, who believed or disbelieved. We don't know any of them. One of the most striking things about the would-be flyers of history, though, is how many of them remain anonymous well past the point that anonymity was universal or even normal. The record is filled with accounts of an Italian who tried to fly, or a cantor, a laborer, a Turk, a Venetian. Even the man who first held on to George Cayley's glider for dear life, the first person to have been a part of the actual progress of flight, is unnamed. He is merely a butler. What's more curious still is that while we don't know the names of so many of the early people who actually attempted to fly, we nevertheless do know the names of people who definitely didn't. Mythology and legend are riddled with the names of flyers who never existed, or who never flew, or who never existed and never flew, who nevertheless sail the skies of imagination forever. It doesn't seem fair that phony people and phony events should be commemorated while so many of the real people who really gave flying their all fade into the background. The first attempt at flight on record, though, is different. Like so many others, we don't know his name. Maybe it was lost, like so many names have been lost through arbitrary circumstance, a trick of history, the burning of this library or that. Or perhaps it was forgotten, pushed out of memory to make room for something more important, the height of a pillar, the results of a horse race. Maybe his name, like the names of so many of his fellow flyers, had never been considered worth knowing in the first place. Anonymity doesn't care about morality. It has no preference for the good or the bad. It's not concerned with success or failure either. Anonymity's only interest is scale. The size of the triumph. The magnitude of the folly. The scope of the heroism. The severity of the villainy. Like so many others, we don't know his name. But unlike the others, we can imagine a happier reason why. That his skill was so total, so singular, that his very identity, his name itself, fell away with his task. After all, it is the job of an actor to disappear inside a role. So maybe his anonymity means the very opposite of what it means for the others. Maybe he was such a fantastic actor that his real name couldn't contain him, and it shattered under the pressure of his greatness. Maybe. Who knows? We can pretend, at least. It's nicer that way. So, let's say it's an honor that the only thing we know of the actor who was the first to fly is the last part he played, and call him after that character. His name was Icarus.
He knew the part as well as anyone. Icarus, son of Daedalus, the great Athenian craftsman who built a labyrinth where a cage would have surely sufficed to trap the Minotaur. It was a circuitous solution to a circuitous problem. The trouble had begun when King Minos of Crete asked Poseidon to send him a fine, unblemished white bull that he could then sacrifice back to the sea god. But when Minos laid eyes on the Cretan bull, he decided it was too good to waste, so he switched it on the altar for a regular old bull, blemishes and all. Poseidon noticed, what with his being a god and all, and his comeuppance asked his sister Aphrodite to plunge Minos' wife, Pasiphae, deep into the depths of love. With the Cretan bull. And so the Minotaur was born. Half bull, half Pasiphae, half Poseidon. The Greeks didn't have a firm grasp of how parentage worked or fractions. Anyway, that was how Daedalus landed the gig building the labyrinth. When his work was finished, Minos rewarded him by locking him in a tower so that the secret would never get out. Along with him was his son, Icarus. The story of Daedalus is a story of triumph. A loyal craftsman outmaneuvering his despotic boss, crafting wings, and literally flying to freedom. In contrast, the story of Icarus is one of hubris or callowness, or absent-mindedness, or some other pejorative trait of impatient youth, which caused him to grab defeat from the mouth of victory, flying too close to the sun, melting his wings, and plunging into the sea and drowning. One of these two stories is far more popular than the other, and maybe that should tell us something. Until the 1850s, the history of flight was all Icarus stories. But here, again, our actor is exceptional. Of all the people, until Cayley's anonymous butler, he is the only one we can call successful. Because his goal was not to fly. He wasn't playing Daedalus, after all. He was Icarus. And a more convincing Icarus you could not imagine. Being an actor in Rome was already unpleasant. The Roman people loved a good entertainment, but generally preferred circuses and armed combat to comedy and drama. Most of the theater was Greek, and some Roman elites distrusted or disliked Greek things. But even those who loved the theater, who loved the poetry and the passion, who longed to hear Seneca's adaptations of Sophocles, still disliked the actors. Roman society admired virtue, accomplishment, and honesty, all of which actors seemed the opposite of. They played impious, immoral characters. Instead of accomplishing their own greatness, they aped the feats of others. And honesty? <laughs> Who could be less trustworthy than an actor whose job was to lie, and lie convincingly, to pretend at happiness or anger or sadness or arousal, when who knew what was really behind the mask? Many of the actors were slaves, and for them, a life in the theater was a complicated thing. On the one hand, working upon the stage was one of the few ways a slave might hope to gain secure freedom. On the other, they might be beaten or punished if the audience disliked a performance. Under Emperor Tiberius, acting got even worse. Maybe Tiberius's dislike for theater was already with him before he came to power. Maybe it was predicated upon the weird, high-minded distrust that other Romans had. But probably, Tiberius was pissed about the mime. Tiberius really hated mimes. He especially hated 
I'm not kidding here. He especially hated the way that they ran in place. And he hated that they had fans who followed them around and gossiped about them. He suspected this love of mimes would be the fall of civilization. Still, Tiberius was mostly able to keep his seething resentment of mimes to himself. Until he became emperor. As one of his first official acts, he was pressured by the Senate to make a good faith gesture, buying the freedom of a popular enslaved mime named, again, I'm serious, Actius. Gritting his teeth, Tiberius did as the public demanded, paying his own hard-earned money to improve the lot of that accursed place-runner Actius. But that was it, he told the Senate. He made an official declaration that he wouldn't help any other actors unless they shamefully demonstrated for him their rank destitution. Tiberius didn't bring a single play for the public during his entire reign. In 14 AD, an actor refused to take the stage unless he were given more money, and riots broke out. The next year, Tiberius cut the pay rate for actors, and more riots followed. In response, Tiberius passed laws to make life more miserable for them and to alienate them further from proper society. Street performances were almost entirely outlawed. Senators were barred from entering the homes of performers. Actors were banned from serving in government and most parts of public life. After yet another theater riot in 23 AD, Tiberius cracked down on the actors even harder. He exiled them. Our Icarus wasn't acting in the time of Tiberius, though. He got his big break 40 years after the exile, under a new emperor who had a very different relationship to the theater. Which probably sounds like good news, except that the new emperor was named Nero. The Constant is brought to you by University of California, Irvine, Division of Continuing Education. Today's economy is highly competitive, and UCI DCE can prepare you to stand out. According to data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, continuing education correlates to higher income. It opens doors to networking opportunities, better job opportunities, and career progression. Not to mention that there's a strong argument to be made for self-betterment being the point of life. UCI DCE has been serving lifelong learners and skills development needs for the local, regional, and global community for over 50 years. They offer over 80 career-focused programs in business, leadership, tech, education, engineering, health sciences, law, finance, and more. Some programs can even prepare individuals to sit for industry certifications or provide continuing education credit towards recertification. Courses are offered on a quarterly basis and non-formal application is required to enroll. Learn from instructors who are practicing professionals with extensive relevant industry experience and gain practical skills that can be applied immediately on the job. At UCI DCE, enrollment is open to everyone. Go to ce.uci.edu slash learn now to learn now. Again, that's ce.uci.edu slash learn now or follow the link in the show notes. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs to match you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's not a crisis line or self-help, it's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. 
They have licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, trauma, relationships, grief, and more. And since they're available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash the constant. While you and I, and Edward Gibbon, may remember Nero primarily as the young dictator who murdered his mother, his brother, and two of his wives, as the oppressor of Christians, Jews, and Britons, and as the leader who fiddled while Rome burnt, Nero preferred to be known for the art he made when things weren't on fire. Actor first, monomaniacal dictator second. He acted a lot. So much, in fact, that Pliny refers to him as more an actor than an emperor. And the lower class, the plebs, loved him for it. They couldn't get enough of his performance. The elites were a different story, as evinced by Vespasian, who fell asleep during one of Nero's monologues and was threatened with execution for the transgression. Nero was the greatest actor of his time, or at least the most famous. Far better known than our Icarus, that's for sure. In 67 AD, Rome held an Olympics. They were supposed to hold it in 66 AD, but Nero wouldn't have been able to participate that year, so 67 it was. Nero also forced the organizers to add artistic competitions to the games. He won every event. Best lyre player, best singer, best monologue, best tragedy. He also won the chariot race, despite having been thrown from his chariot and bowing out mid-lap. The judges awarded him first prize anyway, saying that he would have won if he had managed to finish. Legend has it that the first time he sang in public in Naples, there was an earthquake mid-song. But Nero kept singing, and when he was done, he thanked the gods for their applause. Under Nero, theater was everywhere. And everywhere there was theater, there was Nero. Literally, Nero demanded a part in every play performed in Rome, each theater was required to have a hollow statue of the emperor made, behind which an actor could stand and deliver Nero's lines to the public. When he actually took the stage, he preferred to play Oedipus, Orestes, Thyestes, even Medea. In other words, characters who killed their family members, like he had. He wore masks, crafted in the likeness of his victims, so that, as Cassius Dio put it, his murdered brother or wife could take part in the spectacle. And that spectacle didn't end at the proscenium. Under Nero, everyday life became a strange sort of elevated fiction for everyone around him. One day he goaded his stepbrother, Britannicus, into reciting a poem. Britannicus, it seems, did a good job. That made Nero jealous, and so he decided to poison him. He slipped Britannicus the dram at dinner, 
When Britannicus started to foam and seize, Nero told the table that he was just suffering from an epileptic fit and to ignore it. Everyone had to pretend they believed him, going on with supper as Britannicus violently died alongside them. Everyone, including Britannicus's sister, Octavia, who, as it happens, was also Nero's wife, who he eventually had killed as well. Still, the people loved him. They loved the entertainment, the endless circuses, fights, competitions, and sports. And they loved the plays. The greatest of Nero's theatrical shows were what he called the Ludi Maximi, unspeakable spectacles given for, quote, the eternity of the empire. He built a gigantic amphitheater in the middle of the city and gave himself the front row seat, a royal couch to recline in and watch the action. There weren't enough actors in all of Rome to fill out these burlesques, so Nero forced other citizens, even old men and women, to take part. He made the Senate fight in gladiatorial matches against Roman knights and wild animals, staged massive sea battles against theatrical sea monsters, and offered Greek youths Roman citizenship in exchange for strip teases and acts of bestiality. But there were some jobs that were too important for senators and children, things that called for more skill and dedication. Acts reserved for the actors, the crown jewel of them all being the flight of Icarus. The first reliable historical account of someone attempting to fly is only one sentence long. Less than that, actually, just a clause in a larger sentence. So, what we can say about it for sure is extremely limited. We know he was an actor. And we know he was playing Icarus for Emperor Nero's Ludi Maximi. Which means, we can safely say, he was never meant to succeed. A great actor lives in the moment. A great actor can't say, I've read the script, I know the end. A great actor has to deny the inevitable and strive for their goal even when it is impossible. Like a character out of Greek mythology. Like Sisyphus. Like Icarus. As he climbed to the top of the massive proscenium, he felt a rising confidence. As he stood atop the world, he felt the wind whipping through his waxen wings and knew the truth. The man in the statue was the emperor. Britannicus was only having a seizure. And the actor could fly. He only had to believe. Believe with all his heart. Allow his whole life, his body, his mind, his very name to dissolve into its new identity. At the sound of his cue, he leapt without hesitation. He felt the air running over his skin, his arms, his face, and filling the wings behind his shoulders. He was safe. He was flying. He was Icarus. Then the wings snapped back, and Icarus did as he was always meant to. He fell. He hit with a hard splat beside the imperial couch. Whoever he had been was gone, lost to time already. The actor was gone, replaced by a legend. The Icarus who flew too close to the sun and covered Emperor Nero in his exploded guts.
Chapter 2 The Prince Yuan Hong Tao was the prince of nothing. His father, Yuan Leng, had briefly been called the emperor of the Northern Wei dynasty, but functionally, he too ruled over nothing. Leng was a puppet leader, elevated to the position when he was 18 by General Gao Huang, who was in the process of deposing the other emperor of the Northern Wei dynasty, Zhe Min, who was himself a puppet leader installed by Prime Minister Yuzhu Shalong, who was busy trying to defeat General Gao. He failed. In the spring of 532, General Gao managed to defeat a bunch of the Erzu family in battle, and Shilong's own general, Hu Xishun, seeing the writing on the wall, rebelled, killing Shilong and his brother, Utsu Yongbo, and sending their heads to Gao as a peace offering. It was good news for Yuan Lang, whose stake as emperor was now uncontested. It was also bad news, since once Gao had power, he decided Yuan Lang wasn't as good a choice for emperor as he'd originally thought, and deposed him too. Don't despair, Yuan Lang. Sure, he wasn't emperor anymore, but then again, he never really was. Anyway, there was a second bit of good news. The new emperor, Zhuo Wu, had decided to give Yuan Lang a different title, the Prince of Anding. There hadn't been a Prince of Anding before, but it still came with more actual autonomy than he'd had under Gao. For six months, Yuan Lang ruled over Anding, bowing only to Emperor Zhuo Wu. Oh, speaking of, don't celebrate, Yuan Lang. There's more bad news, too. After that six months, Yuan Lang received a letter from the emperor letting him know that he'd changed his mind. He didn't want Yuan Lang to be Prince of Anding anymore. Instead, he thought that Yuan Lang should kill himself. And so he did. Yuan Lang was buried in the winter of 532. At the beginning of the year, he'd been emperor, then prince, and then he was dead by his own hand, on the orders of Zhuo Wu, buried without honors. But don't give up just yet. There was another turn of luck. Eventually, the title Prince of Anding was restored and given to Yuan Lang's son, Yuan Huangtao. Oh, don't look now, though. The turns of fortune are coming faster and faster. Soon, Emperor Zhuo Wu decided to break free from General Gao's control. It didn't work out. Zhuo Wu fled the country, was poisoned by his new general, Yuan Tei. In 550, General Gao Huang's second son, Gao Yang, took over. To mark the occasion, he began slaughtering the remaining nobles from the previous regime. Not Yuan Huangtao, Prince of Anding, Prince of Nothing. He wasn't important enough even to massacre. Instead, he was imprisoned at the Tower of the Phoenix in the city of Yi, along with some other disposable prisoners, to take part in an experiment. A thousand years earlier, the kite had been invented perhaps by Lu Ban, who also perhaps invented the saw, the grappling hook, the battering ram, and, even less surely, the tricycle. Gao Yang wasn't the first person to wonder about whether you could stick a person onto the tail of a kite, but officially, at least, he was the first one to try it. Time after time, man after man, kite after kite, Gao Yang tossed his prisoners from the Tower of the Phoenix. They dangled from the tail of a great giant kite, which they quickly brought down as they plummeted to earth. There's no telling how many people Yuan Huangtao watched die this way as he waited his turn. There's no telling what he could see if he steeled himself against the fear and horror and forced himself to learn from their failings. Whatever the reason, when it came time, Yuan Huangtao did not fall. He dangled chaotically from the tail of the kite 
as it amazingly glided away from the Tower of the Phoenix. The tower was a hundred feet tall, and the kite slowed Huang Tao's descent so severely that when he touched ground, he was standing on a road more than a mile and a half away. Yuan Hong Tao was prince of nothing no longer. Now he was the prince of the sky. No one, not even Gao Yang, could take that away from him. But he could take away his food, which is what he did. And Yuan Huang Tao, once prince of Anding, once prince of nothing, forever prince of the sky, starved to death in prison. The Constant is brought to you by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That is why it is America's number one meal kit. The new year is a great time to focus on what's important to you. Whether it's saving money by ordering less takeout, learning to cook, or prioritizing your health, HelloFresh is here to help with endless options to make cooking at home simple and enjoyable. HelloFresh has 50 menu and market items to choose from every week, including veggie, calorie smart, family friendly, and gourmet options, providing plenty of variety. Recipes like hibachi sweet soy bayette steak and shrimp bring restaurant quality meals right to your kitchen, while their white cheddar wonder burgers make it easier than ever to skip the takeout. We recently made shepherd's pie, and it was scrumptious. We had a dinner guest over, and the recipe card made it super easy to scale up for an extra person. I love shepherd's pie. I have my own shepherd's pie recipe that I have developed over years, and let me tell you, from now on, when I make shepherd's pie, it's going to be HelloFresh's. Go to HelloFresh.com slash TheConstant16 and use code TheConstant16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's up to 16 free meals and three free gifts when you go to HelloFresh.com slash TheConstant16. That's the numbers, not the spelling. And use our code, the constant 16 at checkout. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business, so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. Scaling your business is a journey of endless possibility. I love how Shopify has the tools and resources that make it easy for any business to succeed from down the street to around the globe. Reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. Gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash the constant, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash the constant right now. Shopify.com slash the constant. You're successful in business because you love doing the research, whether it's the state of the market or the next right hire. But when you're low on hours and you still need to do a great job on hiring, who do you go to for help? It's time for Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. 
because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. And they've got virtual interviews, which saves you time and headaches. No downloads, plugins, or purchases. You can do it all in one place with Indeed. Maybe that's why it's the number one job site worldwide, according to Comscore. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash The Constant. Offer valid through March 31st. Go to Indeed.com slash The Constant to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Indeed.com slash The Constant. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Chapter 3. The Polymath. There's one question that's always pertinent when studying history. It's about as fundamental a thing as you can ask. Yet, you have to be careful when you deploy it. Because while it's almost universally valid to wonder, it's also the exact sort of question that will get you kicked out of class, or a conference, or a dinner party. The question goes, did that really happen? Don't get me wrong, there are plenty of things about the past that are firmly set. Things that were caught on camera. Things with voluminous primary documentary evidence. Things with corroborating witnesses. The Titanic sank. The Twin Towers fell. The Americans dropped the bomb. There are other events which must have happened because they're part of a greater latticework of history. A prime example being the Battle of Hastings. Remove it from the historical record and things stop making sense. How did the Normans end up in charge of England? How did William become the conqueror, etc.? We know when the battle happened, not just because of eyewitness accounts and records, but also because of a conspicuous external factor, Halley's Comet. According to William of Malmesbury, the first person to notice the comet was a fellow Benedictine monk. The monk was old, and his legs gnarled and broken from an accident in his youth. But when he looked up and saw the comet, he recognized it from its last appearance in the night sky, when he was a young boy, and said, You've come, have you? You've come, you source of tears to many mothers. It is long since I saw you, but as I see you now, you are very much more terrible, for I see you brandishing the downfall of my country. On the other side of the channel, William saw the comet as the same sign, that he would take over England. Others had other interpretations of what the comet meant, but all around the world, people marked its presence in the records. The Comet of 1066 is a great lodestone for history, a rare event that is independently verifiable and universally acknowledged. It gives us a place to square up events from all around the world and say, these things happened then. But Halley's Comet only comes around once every 75 years, and it's not always as bright as it was for William. Most events of the past are not as confidently locked in time or in understanding. Again, though, I wouldn't go around saying that and expecting people to be impressed. 
lot of people are dimly aware that Nero did not fiddle while Rome burnt, or that there's no exogenous evidence for the Exodus story. Most will not be impressed by this information. Some will be downright hostile. But when it comes to the history of flight and falling, did that really happen is a welcome refrain. And frequently the answer is a fairly decisive no. The first person on record attempting to fly is Bladud, who was king of the Britons around 860 BC, until he was taught the secrets of flight by the spirits of the ancestors, constructed a set of wings with the knowledge, leapt from the temple of Apollo, and fell to his death. But not only did King Bladud probably not try to fly, he probably didn't even actually exist. Alexander the Great is said to have wished he could see the whole world. To fulfill that wish, so the legend goes, he attached two griffins to either side of a seat at which he sat holding skewers of meat high above his head so that the griffins would rise into the air trying to get at the food. Not only is Alexander's story logically and logistically impossible, but it doesn't appear to have been invented until 1400 years or so after his death, a century or so after William conquered England. Joseph of Cupertino, patron saint of flying, was a 17th century friar who, it's commonly said, was frequently seized by rapturous ecstatic visions. During some of these visions, witnesses wrote, he would levitate. But a closer examination of the sources suggests that his visions were the results of epilepsy, and that what were later described as his flights were really just Joseph jumping around a lot. Then there's Abbas ibn Farnas. Unlike King Bladud, Abbas ibn Farnas was a for sure real person. Born around 810 AD in what is now the Spanish town of Ronda, but what was then part of the Islamic Emirate of Cordoba, he left behind poems and music that confirm his existence. He built an observatory as well as a water clock. He developed a process for cutting quartz into clear glass and made from this glass the first corrective lens, reading stones, that could be placed upon a written page to magnify its text. And, according to the Andalusian historian Ahmad Muhammad el-Maghari, he also flew. Abbas ibn Farnas isn't like King Bladud, and he's not quite like Alexander the Great, either. Al-Maghari's account is the oldest surviving description of his flight, and it wasn't written until 800 years later, but there's some reason to believe that Al-Maghari's description was based on earlier, perhaps even contemporaneous records which have since been lost. Abbas ibn Farnas isn't like St. Joseph, either. The account of his flight isn't explainable by exaggeration or misunderstanding. If Abbas ibn Farnas flew, he flew for real. He covered himself with feathers for the purpose, attached a couple of wings to his body, and, getting on an eminence, flung himself down into the air, when according to the testimony of several trustworthy writers who witnessed the performance, he flew a considerable distance as if he had been a bird. But, in alighting again on the place when he had started, his back was very much hurt, for not knowing that birds, when they alight, come down upon their tails, he forgot to provide himself with one. Plenty of people not only count Al-Maghari's tale as genuine, but call Abbas ibn Farnas the first successful aviator in human history. Yet, when I ask myself the question, did this really happen, I come back saying no, for a simple, perhaps cynical reason. According to Al-Maghari, Ibn Farnas succeeded. Chapter 4 The Lexicographer 
Compared to Abbas ibn Farnas, the story of Abu Nasr al-Jawari's flight is threadbare. Depending on the source, it occurred in either 1002 or 1008 in Nishapur in the northeast of present-day Iran. At the time, he was working on the crown of language and the correct Arabic, the definitive Arabic dictionary of the medieval period. And then, one day, al-Jawari had an idea. Some say he was inspired by Ibn Farnaz, whereas the geographer, historian, and biographer Yakut al-Hamawi said he was seized suddenly by the delusion that he was a bird. According to a witness, he climbed to the top of a minaret with a wooden plank tied to each of his arms. Then, before a curious and probably concerned crowd, he announced, O oh people, no one has made this discovery before. Now I will fly before your very eyes. The most important thing on earth is to fly to the skies. That I will do now. He fell like a stone to his death. And that story, I believe. Chapter 5. The Monk At nearly the same time that Al-Jawari fell from the minaret in Nishapur, a young monk was climbing to the top of Malmesbury Abbey in Wiltshire County, England. Up until that moment, the tragic world of flying men was almost exclusively the dominion of the Muslim Golden Age. But something was changing in Christianity. As the medieval historian Lynn Townsend White Jr. points out, one interesting way to examine that change is to look at the story of Christ's ascension. After the crucifixion and the resurrection, the rolling away of the stone, the touching of the wounds, and so forth, Jesus is said to have ascended into heaven. But what exactly does that mean? In the Gospel of Luke, it says he was, quote, carried up into heaven. And for the first thousand years or so, that is how most Christians thought of it. When the ascension was painted, it usually showed Jesus being pulled up by angels, or else just rising, without hurry, into the sky, like an extremely low-energy production of Peter Pan. But at the turn of the millennium, that perception began to shift. Depictions of the ascension show Jesus bodily grabbing onto clouds and climbing them, or reaching for the hand of God for a pick-me-up. In England, the image was even more dramatic, Jesus shooting skyward with such force that the garments of his disciples are rumpled, and with such speed that only his feet are left in frame. Angels were changing, too. Their comically tiny Warner Brothers cartoon wings were growing, becoming, well, not more realistic exactly, but let's say less unrealistic. In other words, 11th century Anglo-Saxons were taking the miracle of flight more seriously. And for good reason. The windmills of the Muslim world had only recently crept up into England, but once they got there, they multiplied all over the countryside, a constant and tangible reminder of the power of air as a real and useful force. Craftsmen and engineers were exerting their will on nature, and so channeling the will of nature to exert its force for them. This is when and where the Christian God first becomes a craftsman himself, not just an unmoved mover through whom creation stems, but an active, personal worker who earned his day of rest after six days of real labor. It's in the light of all of that that Eilmer, a Benedictine monk not older than 25, ascended Malmesbury Abbey, climbing it as Christ had once summited the clouds. Surrounded by windmills and secure in his image of a rocketing Jesus and a handyman Yahweh, Eilmer thought the story of Daedalus seemed true. 
although he seems to have missed the Icarus part. So he built wings, big ones, like how angels were being painted, attached them to his hands and his feet, and waited for a strong breeze. According to the historian William of Malmesbury, Aylmer did not fall. Not right away, at least. He glided, wrote William, for more than the distance of a furlong, or approximately two football fields. But, continues William, agitated by the violence of the wind and the swirling of air, as well as by awareness of his rashness, he fell, broke his legs, and was lame ever after. He himself used to say that the cause of his failure was his forgetting to put a tail on the back part. Why is it always the tail? Anyway, here's the question again. Did this really happen? Yeah. Probably. Maybe. What makes Eilmer of Malmesbury's story different than Abbas ibn Farnas? A lot of things. For starters, ibn Farnas was said to have flown from an eminence and then landed back at that same eminence. That's true level flight, which I feel safe saying couldn't be achieved by sticking feathers to your arms. Eilmer, on the other hand, is only said to have glided downward. As it happens, the landscape was probably on his side too. The abbey was set on the top of a hill, which ran into a valley, which ran into a river. So Eilmer only had to manage to turn his fall slightly away from straight down to succeed in getting a ways away. Did he really make it 200 yards? I doubt it. And surely a lack of tail was the least of his problems. But with the right wind and a good strong kick off the tower, Eilmer could certainly have made a bit of horizontal distance, along with the vertical one that permanently hobbled his legs, which is the strongest clue that Eilmer's attempt was real. William of Malmesbury was too young to see it for himself, but he did know Eilmer. He probably heard the story straight from the horse's mouth and from the abbot who barred Eilmer from trying his stunt a second time with the tail. And William was there when Eilmer then in his 80s, and still moving about on his mangled legs, looked up into the sky and became the first person to see the comet. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound, Blue Dot Sessions, and Lee Rosevere. Title cards by Heather Chrysler. Special thanks go out to all of our patrons, especially our latest heroes. Martin Coons, GeoGuide, Josh Story, Brent Reese, Melissa, Arunas, Jim Kelly, Estachia, Victoria Meldrum, Clayton, and a bloat of hippos. Every day is a good day to appreciate a bloat of hippos. If you'd like to join them in supporting this show, go to patreon.com slash the constant to get started. And again, one last time, thank you to everyone at Hub and Spoke for their years of support. Tamar, Wade, Charles, Galen, Erica, Nick, Matt, Patrick, Kavita, and Zach, I'll miss you most of all, even though I'm going to keep randomly texting you and receiving random texts from you. Not to mention that I will be listening to all of your wonderful work, and I hope that everyone listening to this will be listening too. Another round of thanks go to Ben Mathis and Airwave Media for their support and confidence in the future of The Constant. Let's see how quickly I'm able to betray it. <laughs> we'll have more stories of humanity's quixotic attempts to fill the sky in two weeks. Until then, from Chicago, Illinois, where in 1902, Louis Gathman announced the invention of a mechanical automobile airship 
that would solve the problem of flight, although it had no commercial value. This has been The Constant. Lewis Gathman? How do I know that name? Chapter 4 Jupiter's Barking